Lord God, we do once again ask for the humility to receive your word. We know that is the work of your Holy Spirit. And God, we pray that you would do that for us. May you be pleased and glorified in us. Lord, may you open eyes to see the glory of the gospel. Uh, may you convict of sin through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we'll be in Luke 14 this morning. Remember when I was in undergrad, I was at a training event. I was a senior in college, and a local church had kind of hosted a, a group of us for this training that we were receiving, and they'd stocked this fridge with soda and snacks, and I'm sitting there on the little couch area they have for us, and I, and I asked, is there any more soda left? And somebody opened the fridge, and they looked in, and they said, there's one more soda. And before I could do anything, another guy next to me stood up, ran to the fridge, opened it, and began to drink the soda. Now, I'm over it. That was only 15 years ago or whatever, 20 years ago. This guy had, had no shame, but as I sat there bewildered that somebody could be so publicly rude, you know, I began to kind of think about my own heart because I was thinking, how come he gets a soda? I'm obviously the most important person in this room. The same sort of self-centeredness that led this guy to shoot out of his seat and take the soda was ruling in my heart. And this, this sort of self-centeredness, this pride, it's as old as, as sin. You know, we, Neither one of us would have said it out loud, but we both thought we, we, we deserve that. We were the most important person there. In our passage this morning, Jesus challenges the pride and the self-centeredness of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders in Israel. They were blinded by their own pride from seeing the glory of their Messiah, the glory of Christ. So our text opens, as you recall, when Nate was reading the passage, our text opens at a meal in the house of one of the Pharisees. Um, you know, Nate, I had Nate, or I asked Nate to read verses 1 through 24. We're going to make it through verse 14 today, all right? But I think this is one text that sort of goes together. So we'll call this part one. If we were going to take the whole text together, we might outline it this way. In verses 1 to 6, Jesus humbles his opponents. In verses 7 through, or, or sorry, verses 1 to 6, Jesus silences his opponents. In verses 7 through 14, he humbles his opponents. In verses 15 through 23, he excludes his opponents. So we'll get through the first two of those. We'll we'll finish this passage up next week. Let's look at that first point. In verses 1 to 6, Jesus silences his opponents. Now, if you've been with us through this series, you, you know that, that we're in a larger section in the Gospel of Luke. It really began back in chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And all the way through chapter 19, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, teaching, healing, preaching, investing in his disciples. And also, much of this section is made up of, of run-ins with the religious leaders in Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, the, the experts in the law. So, so these leaders have found themselves in opposition to Jesus. And they've demonstrated this opposition in their, their pride, their self-centeredness, their self-righteousness, their inability to see Christ for who He is. In fact, if you were with us last week, the text ended with this, this uh, 
really a woe, a curse from Jesus that the house of Israel has been forsaken. So, so, so when we get to our text, we might be wondering, well, why? Why is it that the house of Israel is forsaken? Why will the temple be overrun? Why will Israel be dispersed? Why will the gospel go to the nations? Well, it's because they've made themselves the opponent, the enemy of Christ through self-righteousness, self-centeredness, and pride. And as opponents of Jesus, we see in this text that they are silenced before him, and then they're brought low before him, and then they are ultimately excluded. So in this first paragraph, we see that they have no words in light of the the confrontation of Christ and in the working of his miraculous deliverance. So for the third time in the Gospel of Luke, he's actually invited to a meal by a Pharisee. You know, remember back in Luke chapter 7 when when Jesus was invited and a woman of the city who was known as a sinner, she comes in to to, uh, the the feast there, the meal, and she's broken over sin and she's washing Jesus' feet and Jesus tries to teach Simon the Pharisee there that she loves me because she knows that she's a sinner. You don't love me because you don't recognize that you are a sinner. And in Luke chapter 11, he's invited again, and he doesn't participate in sort of their, their rituals, their ceremonies, their washing. And Jesus teaches them that it's not the washing of the outer man that is necessary, but it, it, it's not that which comes inside your body that defiles you. It's that which proceeds out of your mouth that defiles you. And he, he, he reminded them that they are full of evil, and they've put these legalistic, burdensome uh, rules on top of their fellow Israelites. And therefore, they've, they've helped blind the nation to the glory of Christ. And so we've seen that these dinner parties often do not go well for the host. They, they've become a place of confrontation. And, and we've also seen as we've walked through uh, the Gospel of Luke that the Sabbath becomes a, a really hot-button issue for these Pharisees. And so in our text, these two come together. It's a meal in a Pharisee's home on the Sabbath. And it goes about how you would expect it to go. The Pharisee has, has invited Jesus over. And, and, and it seems from that line in verse 1 that they are watching him carefully. That this is not a cordial invite. This isn't a sympathetic Pharisee that's seeking to discern the truth. All the Pharisees are there watching him. The, the idea is that they're, they're waiting for him to stumble so that they might entrap him in something that he does or something that he says. They're hoping that he messes up and that they can invalidate Jesus in front of the eyes of people. They won't have to deal with Jesus any longer. And, and behold, the text says, once you know it, there's a man there on the Sabbath that needs to be healed, and we've seen that this is an issue for the Pharisees. That word, behold, you know, we, we've seen that, that that draws your attention quickly to something else. Behold, look, there's a man there who is in need of healing. You know, potentially he's there at, at, at the invitation of the Pharisee in order to try to create the scenario where they might trap Jesus. What we know for sure is that this man has a, a disease called dropsy. It, it, it's really indicative of, of other conditions. 
Likely this man has some kind of a heart condition that's causing him to swell up, and, he, and he's, he's probably a terminal illness that he has. So he's got some serious physical issues going on. And we're not surprised by this point in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus takes notice of this needy man. He continually sees and meets the needs of those who are completely and utterly helpless. He, he demonstrates his power and authority for those who, who recognize their helplessness and come to Jesus for help. So in, in the second part of verse 3 then, he, he turns to the Pharisees, understanding what, what's about to happen. He turns to the Pharisees and asks them this question. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So they set out to entrap Jesus. And not surprisingly, they find themselves entrapped by Jesus. They're left silent. They have no reply. If it is lawful, then why, are, why, why have they watched Jesus so clearly to see if he does this? Why have they given Jesus fits in the past for healing on the Sabbath? Is it lawful? Well, if yes, why are you condemning me for doing this work? If it's not lawful, then Jesus will ask another question that points out their hypocrisy. But if it's not lawful... They lack, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, lack the sort of compassion and love and care that is demonstrable in God's character. So the, the, this question, it, it hangs in the air as the religious leaders are silent before Christ. And as we said, what can they say? They don't actually have the law on their side. They don't have love of God and love of neighbor on their side. All they have is their hatred for Jesus and their desire to entrap him, and therefore they're silent in the face of Jesus' question. So Jesus takes the man, he, 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 he grabs him, touches him in, in, in some way to heal the man. That word uh, took him means, means to take hold of, to, to grasp. So he touches the man, and as we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, immediately this man is healed. The swelling, whatever was causing the swelling, immediately gone. This man stands complete, healed. And, and then Jesus sends him away. Right? And what, what we gather from that in the text is that he, this passage is not primarily about Jesus' ability to heal. We've seen that. You know, we've, we've dealt with that, or we've, we've talked about what that means for Jesus to come as a healer. But this, this paragraph is not so much about healing as it is about the Pharisees and the rejection of Jesus, despite the evidence. The man is gone, right? The healing's over with, but this passage goes all the way through verse 24 with Jesus addressing the Pharisees. And so Jesus then sort of tightens down the, the, the trap in a sense with the second question in verse 5. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? So he's exposing again, we've seen Jesus do this before, he's exposing again the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Of course they would. You know, there's some question whether that word son is in, in the original manuscripts. But, but Jesus made this point before. 
That, that if you had an ox that was thirsty, you would untie him on the Sabbath and take him down. Here he's making a similar point. If an ox fell in a, in a hole, you would pull him out on the Sabbath day. Of course you would. And, and you should do that. You should act in that way. And, and so Jesus is pointing out that even an ox can be saved on the Sabbath. Imagine the work Right? Imagine the exertion necessary to get an ox out of a hole on the Sabbath. So Jesus is pointing out to them that, that you can, can do this, you, you should do this. The Sabbath didn't cancel the law in Deuteronomy that said you should help your neighbor pull the ox out. So you can do this on the Sabbath. Yet they lack the compassion for this man who has a disease. You would serve an animal, but you wouldn't serve this man. They treat animals better than people. And I know some of you are like, is that a problem? Yes, that's a problem. I know your dog has never cut you off in traffic or yelled at you in the morning. But it is a problem. In fact, one of the problems of self-righteousness is that it, it places you above others so, so that other people become merely nothing to you. It minimizes others. In order to elevate yourself, you must squash those around you. And it can go so deep that these Pharisees here are willing to cast off a man in need of healing, even though they would save an animal on the Sabbath. They just, they just want to undermine Jesus. And they found themselves in hypocrisy because of it. You know, self-righteousness, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees here, the, 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 a person becomes nothing more than a, a means to an end. This diseased guy, he's nothing more than a chance for us to try to undermine Christ. And then this man would have ultimately been hurt if Jesus was like the Pharisees. You know, this man can just be collateral damage as far as the Pharisees are Concerned. That's how deceitful sin is. That these Pharisees can sit there and pat themselves on the back for their own righteousness while treating this man worse than they would treat their own animal. That's what they're guilty of. They have no concern. And so Jesus completely undermines their hypocrisy. Essentially saying, you think you are righteous because you can condemn me for healing on the Sabbath, but I'm going to walk in true righteousness and in true deliverance. You scoff all you want. I'm going to show compassion for this man, yes, on the Sabbath. And remember, we learned a couple weeks ago, the Sabbath, according to Jesus, is the best day for someone to be healed because it reminds us of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And it points forward to the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus over and over and over again has demonstrated and has shown that it is indeed lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Remember, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be a blessing, and the Pharisees and religious leaders have turned it into a burden. It was to be a benefit to man, but they've turned it into something that was going to harm a man and had harmed others. So Jesus reminds us again that someone can do acts of mercy on the Sabbath. They weren't forbidden from tangibly loving others on this day of rest. 
And again, Luke ends, that's why I made my point about the silencing, because Luke ends, they could not reply to these things. Again, he mentions the silence. Today we would say the silence was, was deafening. There was a message inside the silence, and it was that the Pharisees stand condemned. And if anyone at this party is going to enter the kingdom of God, if there's hope for anyone here, then they're going to need a radical change from the heart that's brought about by the Holy Spirit of God. They need the sort of change that only God can bring, and so Jesus begins to instruct them and begins to attack the heart, so to speak. He takes aim at their hearts. That's our second point this morning. Jesus humbles his opponents in verses 7 through 14. He tells a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So the Pharisees and the scribes, in in verse 1, they're watching Jesus closely. What they probably missed is that Jesus was actually also watching them closely. And what he sees is that the guests are competing for the best seat in the house. Like a bunch of football players when the ball has been fumbled and they're all just running and trying to they'll throw themselves at this ball to try to get it they're they're rushing for the top spot they desperately want the seat of honor you know the the the, at most meals like this it'd be sort of a u-shaped table and the host would be kind of at the center there at the bottom of the u and then the, the people would spread out down the line, and it was honorable. It was, it was social status to sit next to the host. They wanted this. It would symbolize to everyone that, that I have a status greater than you all down the line. We see this sort of me-firstness about them. They're concerned about being front and center. But Jesus says that there's actually a risk to jockeying for this sort of position. Because the host of the party would likewise want to be in the most honorable spot. And the way the host could honor himself is to make sure that the two most important people in the room are next to him. So everybody in the room sort of has the same motive, the same idea. So if the host comes in to sit down, there's two goofballs at the table next to him, and he looks over, and here comes the governor. Guess who has to get up and take the walk of shame to the end of the table so that the governor can sit here and the mayor of the city can, work, can sit here? It's an embarrassing reversal. You take the top seat, and then you get kicked out of that seat, and you have to go down to the end of the table. Now, this is... it's. Proverbial wisdom, Jesus is actually pulling from the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verses 6 and 7, say essentially the same thing. Don't sit next to the king, instead sit at the end of the table. That way if the king wants you to sit next to him, you are honored among the others. And so these are, these are wise words for us. Don't seek your own honor, or, or don't overestimate your own importance. Don't use people to climb the social ladder or to elevate yourself in the eyes of others. These are, these are wise words that we can learn from, but these words in this passage is so much more than, than wise words. Jesus is pulling from Proverbs to make a specific point. 
You know, if we're not careful with the text, we, we might assume that this is just a how-to manual from Jesus and how to maximize your own honor at a dinner party. It, it's not that. Luke, when he introduced this, he, he said he told them a parable, not, not, not a proverb. A parable is about how, how we relate to God or how we might enter the kingdom. So the actions of the guests are being used to, to point out something that's drastically wrong with them. It's something more than a lack of etiquette or tact or, or knowledge of how to act. It shows a deep sense of pride that, that is keeping them from coming to God through Christ. Isn't this what one of the woes that Jesus gave to the Pharisees back in chapter 11, verse 43. What did he say? Woe to the Pharisees. That's a curse. Cursed are the Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. This is revealing a pride and a self-centeredness. It's blinding them to the glory of the gospel. And the guests aren't the only ones who were challenged to be humble here. They're not even the only ones that are pointed forward to to the judgment. In verse 12, Jesus turns his attention to the host. I know there's a paragraph break there. Even the ESV, there's a title break. But I, I think these two go together through verse 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So just as the the guests might be trying to cozy up next to the host to serve themselves, so the host might be tempted to only invite those who could then turn around and repay him, whether it be close friends relatives, or, or rich neighbors. The temptation is for, for every relationship to be quid pro quo, that, that you, you give something so that you might get something in return. But true hospitality is, is given, right? It's not exchanged. It's not held over someone's head so that they might give you something back. You know, that's, that's something good for us to remember is we want to be a hospitable people and a hospitable church. But Jesus encourages the host to to invite those who could never repay. You see, the law actually commanded Israel to care for the fatherless, the widow, the alien. In some of the religious feasts, there was specific instruction to Israel that, that these are the sort of people that can come at this feast and they can be filled. It was a demonstration of God's concern. I think as you read the law itself, you just see God's care and compassion and concern for the helpless. But this, this host, he didn't take the spirit of that law that, that, that the alien should come in and, and the orphan should come in and the widow should come in, those who can't help themselves. He, he didn't take the spirit of that law and apply it to his own home where he is willing to have those sort of people in his home. In fact, it would have been unthinkable to invite the sort of people that Jesus said you should invite. The poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. They wouldn't think about having such a person at their table. They wanted to, to demonstrate that they are set apart from, from these sorts of people. So to serve the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, 
This would be a problem for the host that just wants to magnify himself. It would be a problem for a host who wants to elevate his own social status because he'd have to be helping people to their seat rather than sitting at the front of the room seeing who, who, who is prestigious in the room who might actually sit next to him. He'd be busy helping a person to his or her seat or carrying a woman to the seat of honor. And this, this action would demonstrate a heart that's been captured by the message of Christ. This sort of concern for others would demonstrate a heart that's been captured by the message of the kingdom of God. Remember back in Luke chapter 7 when John the Baptist was doubting. Is, he had a moment of doubt. Is, is Christ the one that we've been waiting for? And what did Jesus say? He said, tell John what you've seen. And what did he see in the ministry of Christ? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. A heart that's been transformed by the message that Christ has come to proclaim will demonstrate it in this care and concern for others, especially those who can't repay anything. So the ministry of Jesus was marked by a willingness to rescue and to help and to pursue and to demonstrate compassion. And so verse 14 gives us, gives us a hint in what is wrong with, with the motive of the host. What's wrong with catering to those who can repay you? What does it reveal about the host? Verse 14, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The problem with the host is he's only considering the temporal gain that's available in using his home. He's only concerned about what he can get from this sort of action. It's temporal satisfaction and reward. He has not thought about the future reward of righteousness given by God to those who humble themselves and trust in Christ. So the ideals of of Christ's kingdom run contrary to these fleshly desires to elevate yourself, to use others for your own glory. In fact, the blessing that Jesus says comes is tied directly to the fact that they cannot repay. It, verse 14 again, you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. Well, how does that fit with the blessing? Well, because you're repaid by the Lord. You're rewarded at the resurrection of the just. So like the rich man back in Luke chapter 12, he is living for the here and now. He's living only for temporal gain. He is his reward in this life. And if we peek forward to the next passage, um, we, we see that this Pharisee, even though he's outwardly righteous, conforms to all sorts of standards, we see that unless this man turns away from his own self-righteousness and self-centeredness, that the Pharisee will be excluded. And guess who's invited into the banquet? The blind, the poor, the lame, the crippled. This man is in danger of missing the kingdom that he so set his heart on so sure that, that he will inherit. And his, his very self-centeredness and self-righteousness is demonstrating that he has missed the kingdom of God. So as Israel continues in their 
unrepentance and the rejection of Christ as the Gospel of Luke develops and, and into Acts as you see the Gospel going out to the nations. It's no wonder as we think about this text that the, the church became a place that was marked by an equality of persons. There is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. Because we're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. The church is not to cater to those that, that, that can maybe give more than someone else. Or maybe have more political power in, in a city. You know, I was talking to a pastor not too long ago who said you know, a, a former senator t- began attending the church, took him out to eat and said, you know what, here's what you're doing right in the church, here's what you need to change. And he thought because of his position that he could begin to tell the church what to do. Well, churches are beholden not to people, not to powerful influences, even politicians, but beholden to God's Word revealed to us in Christ. And also as we think about this text, we might say it's no wonder that the church is shaped by self-sacrificial love, not a serve-in-order-to-be-served sort of mentality. You know, I see this modeled by our deacons as they go out and they serve and they help others and they model for us as a church what it is to serve those without, without any expectation of gain in return, not to use people, not to manipulate people, not, not, not to do it so you can get the applause and the honor and the recognition of man, but to do it for the glory of God. Because the church exists not for, not for applause in this life, but we look forward to the, the, the resurrection of the just. And we strive to keep that sort of perspective as a church. So this, this host, he didn't act in this way, obviously. He, he acted not to demonstrate the love of God, but he acted to, demonst- to, to gain his own favor. These sort of guests that Jesus says you should invite into your home, that they, they wouldn't add to the social standing of this Pharisee. In fact, he would probably view it as a lost opportunity. I might miss my shot with this powerful guy or this influential ruler. So we see in the end that this host is captured by the same sort of sin that the guests are. A desire to, to build himself up, a desire to look good in the eyes of others. So we see this embedded in the warnings from Jesus. That that when Jesus warns somebody, or when Jesus warns a crowd, that this is actually an opportunity to turn. It's an opportunity to hear truth and to turn from the way of sin and to turn to Christ. And so Jesus is taking aim at the pride of those at the party and calling them then to turn from that and to walk in humility before him. Jesus is putting their heart on full display, that it's haughty, it's self-centered, it's prideful. Ultimately, those vying for their own position are demonstrating that they're dead in sin. And Jesus says, persisting in this, persisting in this sort of self-exaltation results in eternal humiliation. Look back there at verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That word for there, it it lets us know that there's sort of a turn where the the parable 
stops, and the four there is the explanation of the parable. He's applying it. It's an explanation of why self-exaltation should be repudiated, why it should be turned away from. Why should the guest and the host humble themselves? Why should they not serve themselves? Why should they be humble? Because God eventually humbles those who exalt themselves, and he exalts those who humble themselves. The proud will one day be brought low, while the humble will be lifted up. This is a truth that's repeated over and over in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. We'll see it again in Luke chapter 18. This is the way God has always operated. It's the way he will continue to operate. That God lifts up the lowly and he brings down the the proud and the boastful and the arrogant. So it's no surprise then that that this is the pattern that we see that, that Jesus takes on in himself in the Incarnation. That he humbles himself by leaving heaven's glories. He takes on the fullness of humanity. Imagine that. The the creator of the world. The one for whom and by whom. Yeah, by whom and for whom all things were made. Humbles himself and takes on the fullness of humanity. And he came as a servant. Jesus himself said... I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We've seen Jesus' servant-heartedness on display through, through the Gospel of Luke, that he reaches out and he touches the leper who nobody would, would touch. They would have become unclean. He dines with sinners. He raises the dead. He takes notice of the outcast. He serves the undeserving. And most clearly, we see his humility, we see his servant-heartedness in his death on the cross, that he took sin upon himself. Sin had so ensnared us, and death had so ensnared us, that we were completely and utterly helpless. The way Paul says is we were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, indulging in the lust of flesh. And, and, and the result of that is that we were children of wrath, Sons of disobedience. Death and sin had taken hold of us and made us helpless, yet Jesus has become our substitute. He was credited with our sin so that all those who turn to him and trust in his work and and not their own might be credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's not according to our works, but according to the finished work of Christ, we might be declared perfectly righteous. Again, credited with the work that Jesus did on our behalf. Our salvation is possible because of the humility of Christ. Our salvation is possible because of the humility of Christ. So no wonder Jesus is calling the Pharisees here to humble themselves. Jesus knows that they can't see their need for a Savior, and until they see their need for a Savior, they'll never turn and and look to Him for salvation. No one can come to Christ without first seeing their need for Christ. I read this little couplet this week. It says, Humble we must be if to heaven we go. High is the roof there, but the gate is low. The humble are the broken, the contrite, that see their sin for what it really is, rebellion against God. 
And therefore, they're willing to throw themselves completely at the mercy of God because there's no other way. They bow themselves low. And for those of us who have turned and trusted in Christ, we strive to continue to grow in humility. We strive to imitate Christ as the Spirit begins His work in us of renewing our minds and conforming us to the image of Christ. We want to imitate Christ and His humility. So, So we... We're called to treat others as more significant than ourselves. That's what Paul says that Jesus did in Philippians chapter 2. Considered others more important than himself. And so let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Strive to treat others as more important than yourself. We can stop using people for our own gain and start serving others selflessly. We're actually free in Christ. We're free in Christ from the self-centeredness that ratcheted down this Pharisee from serving and loving others. We're free from that sort of self-centeredness, self-righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. We, one of the reasons Christ came and died is so that we might be free from the chains of sin, not not just the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin, that we might walk in humility and walk in self or, or service to others, even those who could never repay. You know, we don't have to be driven by selfish ambition. We don't have to go into every relationship and conversation and opportunity to serve, wondering, well, what's in it for me? We can... Put that aside. We can repent of those sort of attitudes. We can grow in Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We can truly serve others, especially when there's not some kind of return or some kind of repayment. Why? Because we've been freed from the power of sin and we want to be like Christ who freed those who could never free themselves. So true humility then doesn't seek its, its own honor. Those who are humble don't, don't seek the praise of the world. We can turn away from self-promotion, whether that's at work or whether that's through Instagram or, or however you might be tempted to, to promote yourself. We can turn away from self-promotion by trusting that God exalts the humble in due time. God exalts the humble. He does this. It's His work, and we can trust that He will do it because it's exactly what He's done in Christ. It's exactly what He's done in Christ. We talked about the humility of Christ and Him being mocked and spit on and hauled in front of various audiences as a, as a spectacle and beaten and publicly executed in the way that a criminal would be executed, but we know that that's not the end of the story. We saw the humiliation of Christ. Well, what followed is the the exaltation of Christ. You know, we pointed out when we were in Luke chapter 1 that that there's no one who had further to be able to humble themselves than Jesus, right? He's he's creator. He's the second person of the Godhead, the the, the, the eternal Son of God. He had more room to be humble than anyone else. And he came, and he humbled himself. By taking on flesh, by taking on the fullness of humanity. So, so if, he, if he was able to be more humble than anyone else because he came from this height, guess what? He has more room to be exalted. 
And that's what happened. After the humiliation of Christ, God has exalted Jesus Christ. He has highly exalted Christ. The resurrection vindicated the name of Christ, demonstrating his victory. The ascension of Christ was, was a picture of the dominion that Jesus has over the powers of, and forces of evil. And God has highly exalted him, giving a, him a name above every other name. And at this name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see Jesus warning the Pharisees again that they can humble themselves now and share in this exaltation of Christ. Humble yourself now and share in this exaltation. Or they can continue to walk in the pride that so characterized their lives and bow the knee begrudgingly and be forced one day to admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. As we think about observing communion here in just a minute, Jeff's going to take some time and explain what that means, but let me just wrap up this way, that, that this, is, this is our announcement. As those who have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is our announcement that, that we are completely and utterly helpless in and of ourselves, that without the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, we deserve the wrath of God, yet we've thrown ourselves at His mercy And we're trusting in the work of Jesus Christ as the full and final payment for our sins. Let's pray together and then we'll sing one more song and observe the Lord's Supper. Lord God, we confess that we wrestle with some of the same self-righteous tendencies, self-centeredness, pride, haughtiness. Yet in Christ we've been set free from that. And you have empowered us by the Holy Spirit to walk in righteousness and faith and obedience. And that oftentimes looks like serving those who need service and cannot repay. So Lord, may you continue to shape us and mold us in the image of Christ. Thank you for the gospel in which we are saved. In Jesus' name, amen.